Today's Bible reading is taken from the book of Joshua, chapters 24, and it'll be verses 1 to 28. So it's Joshua 24, 1 to 28. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there and brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. <clears throat> I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land in which you did not toil and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord." Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us out and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed these great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. 
Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people and there at Shechem he drew up for them decrees and laws and Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Then Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are here. We thank you that you are on our side, that you love us, that you are rooting for us, that you pursue us with your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to us through your word, through your prophets, through your priests, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you that we have your word to lean on, rely on, and use for your glory and for the benefit of those around us and ourselves. We pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts to receive from you this morning. We come to church to check in with you, with our brothers and sisters, and we do not want to leave church unmoved by your Holy Spirit and by your word. We desperately want you to answer the questions on our hearts. We desperately want to know you more. We know that without you, we struggle. And so we ask, Lord, that your message this morning will reveal to us a bit more of your plan for us and your presence in our life and how reliable you are and faithful. So please, Lord, allow me to speak your word and, and may we all be blessed by, by hearing more about how awesome you are. I ask this in Jesus' name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, so Joshua. I thought it was interesting that the song we just sang was actually very apt for the, the scripture um, where Joshua was speaking to the people and reminding them of, of all the things that God had done for them. Uh, and then we sing a song which says exactly the same thing. Uh, just quite like that. Who was Joshua? Well, if you've been in the church a long time, you probably know, but Joshua was Moses' assistant. Um, he later became the, the leader after Moses' death. God told Joshua to finish what he had started with Moses, namely to continue the exodus away from Egypt uh, and Egyptian captivity to sovereignty and independence and the promised land. Now, something I really think is quite interesting is that God often renames people uh, or, or gives them a new name. Uh, Joshua wasn't always called Joshua. He was called um, Hoshia, which means something like salvation. So his name was kind of salvation. Uh, and, and Moses changed his name to Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation. Uh, and I think that's probably quite important because Joshua was actually a bit of a great man. He was a great leader, both in terms of governing, shirt and tie type governing, management, uh, direction, but he was also a bit of a warrior and a leader on the field of battle. Um, he had a lot to be kind of boastful about, 
a lot, a lot of attributes that many other men would aspire and look up to. Um, so the name change, I think, is significant. I'm not suggesting that he would do this, but there may be temptation for some, a young man growing up in captivity with cruel masters, with a name like Salvation, to think that somehow he could lead. He would be the one that would do amazing things. And so Moses, I assume led by God, the Holy Spirit, was like, I think a better name for you would be the Lord of Salvation. For a great man like Joshua to have a name that points the people to God and not to him. <clears throat> so maybe it wasn't even about Joshua being tempted to be arrogant, but more God knowing his people that we often have a cult of personality even in the church where we like this pastor, we like this preacher, this prayer, um, but we must always point up to God. He is a salvation. The Lord is salvation. So that's just a little bit about Joshua. Now, what is going on in what we just read? I mean, we read a lot, 28 verses of chapter 24. Well, the book of Joshua is actually a document that documents the events just prior to Moses' death and then the events afterwards. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that includes the arrival and the settling into the promised land that the Israelites were promised. And in this book, God commissions Joshua to continue that work. Get in there, take the land that I've set aside for you, get in there and do it. Uh, and in this book, God's instructing the Israelites to continue to trust in him and to follow Joshua just as you did Moses. And the people agree to follow Joshua as they did Moses. And eventually the Israelites do enter Canaan, the promised land, and they get there through espionage, James Bond type stuff, uh, kind of MI5, MI6, sneaking in the back, finding things out about your enemy and all this kind of stuff. But they also get that land through warfare, blood and guts, beheadings, chopping arms off, violence, ultra violent warfare. Through obedience to God, if you do this, I will do that. Miraculous events. And yes, there's some failures uh, and mistakes along the way. <clears throat> and kind of what happens towards the end is that God then divides the land that they are given into the tribes of Israel. This is yours, 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 yours. And as Joshua was nearing the end of his life, after all of this, he felt compelled to challenge the Israelites. Kind of like those on your deathbed, the last things you would like to say to your family and your loved ones. Uh, and so Joshua's message to the people is, choose this day whom you will serve. It was a simple choice. Option one, follow God. Do as he asks. And if you do, God promises peace and prosperity. Option two, don't follow God. Don't do what he asks. And if you do that, then there will be war and failure. Uh, what do I pick? The Israelites picked the first one, quite obviously. Who wants to pick war and more lack of peace and problems? No one wants that. So it makes sense that the Israelites said, we choose God. 
I mean, they really reciting all the things that God had brought them through, their, their people before them, their parents, their grandparents. It just didn't make any sense to not follow God. They were a long way now from oppression and captivity. They had this new land. Why would they want to go and disobey God? That would be stupid. And so Joshua dies, and Israel actually remained true to their commitment at least until the last of those who had escaped Egypt were alive. So what you actually see here, it's quite common, and maybe people of different generations will see it here, that there are still people of a certain generation who have certain standards and morals who grieve more about the moral decline of society than a lot of the young people, because the young people were not there when society was better, and I say that in a quotation marks, at least a little bit better in a moral sense. And so the same thing happens with Israel. The older people who experienced what God did start to become less. And the younger people who did not experience all this amazing work have grown up with plenty. They don't know the other side. So it doesn't stay that way. Israel stops following God. They start bringing in all the idols from the other nations. It all goes out the window. They stop taking God seriously. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, that the history of Israel up until the, the return of Christ was that it was on and off again, an on and off again relationship with God. When the relationship was good with God, things were good in the land. When the relationship with God was bad, Things were terrible in the land, taken over by other countries. They eventually lost their land. And when Jesus appears, when was the last time they had their own land? They're now under Roman rule. So it's a very clear message and a very clear statement about God for Israel is that if you're for me, I'm for you. If you're against me, good luck. It seems very severe. And this is the problem with the Old Testament. Not, in fact, it's not the problem with the Old Testament. It's the problem with people who do not seek to understand God that they so quickly throw accusations at the Old Testament. Uh, Lindsay and I are involved in, in ministry with people who are often very cynical of the church and Christianity. Uh, atheists, new atheists, whatever they call themselves. People who have been burned by institutional religion and various things. Who buy everything that is, is taught them by people like Dawkins, although he's a bit past it now, but um, we often find ourselves engaging in these topics, watching debates with William Lane Craig to keep ourselves up to date with, um, you know, the latest kind of apologetics on how to engage and, and deal with these things. Um, but the, the people have this idea that the, the God of the Old Testament is just evil, nasty, a tyrant, that, that what I've just described is terrible. You know, um, why so much bloodshed? Why did God choose the Israelites over other nations? What had the other nations done to them? Well, before I'm going to get to the real message of this morning, not that this is not real, I think this is important for us to know. There are a number of points that you can make and think about when faced with that difficult question about the nature of who God is and how he behaves in the Old Testament. Number one, if you are shocked by the bloodshed and the warfare and the passage that I just read, 
It's because you're living in 2019 in a, again, quotation marks, civilized society. You're not living in 1300 BC. Times have changed. Our shock is because we're hundreds of years later, thousands of years later. This is not the world that we live in today. Number two, the Israelites had escaped captivity and slavery. They were treated abysmally. They had no home, separated, working for nothing. They were wandering. They had no home, and they desperately needed a home. Number three, there is perhaps a lot of kind of upset and shock and horror at the kind of British Empire and things like that. But it seems that the amount of shock and disgust that's fired at the Old Testament at the Israelites and the Jewish and Christian God is way over the top. People have a real issue with this. But take for granted that many of the things that we have today are a result of a British Empire, a French Empire, a Spanish Empire, a Roman Empire, Greek, Syrian, Babylonian, and Egyptian Empire. You watch archaeological or historical programs today, they love Egypt. Oh, they're wonderful. They're barbaric people. So were the Syrians, so were the Babylonians. But when it comes to the Israelites, oh, terrible. So there's an issue with God. It's not an issue with God. It's their issue with God, with Israel. All nations have been built at the expense of other people's blood. Not just the USA. There's a country that gets a hard time, right? Oh, terrible what they did to the Native Americans. Every country is built with bloodshed. It's hypocrisy to look at the Old Testament in Israel and say what that they did was particularly worse than any other nation. It's hypocrisy to look at America as British people and judge them for their behavior when we actually think back to our own British empire. There is such a thing as a justifiable war. I studied this at university and not everyone agrees, but death and horror does not mean it's beyond justification. I don't mean it's okay to murder somebody because they've made you mad or they hurt a member of your family or they killed you. I'm not talking about mafia revenge. It's hard to justify, don't get me wrong, for peace-loving people and people who try to follow Christ. It's very hard to imagine warfare being okay because it is so awful. The results and consequences are so nasty. But I don't hear many people criticizing Winston Churchill and praising Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain is criticized as the great coward, tried to be a peacemaker with Adolf Hitler, but we look back in history and say, oh, he wasn't the guy. Winston Churchill's the guy. He stood up against the oppression of Hitler and the Nazis. And I don't know anyone who would suggest that pacifism would have stopped Stalin's genocide. Sometimes to stop tyrants, we have to fight. And let's get things clear about these other nations 
People seem to have this idea that these other nations that God drove out were somehow innocent bystanders who were just tilling their fields going, oh, we, we're such nice people. This idea that, oh, it's like God wiping out the UK because we're such a utopia. These nations were so evil and nasty in so many ways. So many of these nations that Israel encountered were sacrificing their own children, worshipping false gods. Another thing about these nations is they stood in the way of God's plan. Some of them occasionally went, okay, I'll listen to your God. But most of the time, they were like, no, our God is better. These nations were enemies of God, enemies of Israel. Now, that's significant because if Israel didn't get the promised land and David wasn't born and all these other things, where would Jesus come from? This is a huge thing going on here. This is God stopping nations thousands of years ago from preventing the salvation of humanity, everyone, past, present, and future, through Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's another one that people don't like. God is good, the only one who is good. Even Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God the Father is truly good. And if God is good, then he is the only one who can say that the ends justify the means. I cannot do that. Sometimes the ends kind of do, but it depends what the ends are, doesn't it? And these actions by God, thus driving people out and giving Israel the land, are ends that justify the means. The means that led to the establishment of God's people in Israel and everything that happens beyond that to the birth of Jesus in Nazareth many years later. If God is the first cause and creator of morality, your sense of right and wrong, someone on the left wing's sense of right and wrong, someone on the right wing's sense of right and wrong, someone from the west, someone from the east, the north, the south, if we all have been given a sense of right and wrong from God, then it is inconceivable to think that God could be less moral than we are that somehow God did something that we are not allowed to do. You know, that, that by him doing that, it was some kind of hypocrisy. How can a truly good God, moral God, moral giver, commit immorality? It is not true to God's nature. And here's the final point. People go on about the judgment of God, and you Christians are so judgmental, um, it happens a lot, this, even in families where someone is a Christian and others may, maybe not. They're often, oh, you're too judgmental, or you think you're better than us, and so on and so forth. The hypocrisy in that is astounding. I don't know a person in the world who doesn't judge somebody else. And certainly when you see that some politician or even some person makes the front page for some sin, whether it be a murder or some other crime or fraud, everyone seems to jump to judge. 
This is what we should do to them. Hang them. Ah, oh, they bring back a death sentence for these people. Judging people for immorality is not a concept that is not unfamiliar, that is unfamiliar to people who are not Christian. There are a lot of arguments, a lot of ways to debate and talk about these things with other people. But the bottom line is it comes down to who you're serving. Who do you serve? When we serve Christ, it's easier to trust this God that seems so harsh to other people. And you know, whether you're Christian or not, we serve all the time. We serve other people all the time. It could be parents or family, peers, nursery teachers, Sunday school teachers, youth workers, lecturers, church communities, other church communities, employers, colleagues, your spouse, children, uh, wider family, strangers, acquaintances. We serve people all the time, every day. So this act of service thing is not unfamiliar to people. We serve all the time. And we all serve ourselves, every single one of us. We serve ourselves more than any other person. You know, even voluntary performance of duties, whether it be church or elsewhere, um, even if it's reluctantly carried out, it still serves us. There's always something in us that is being served when we serve others. Whether that be, I'm serving because it's the right thing to do. Okay, so we're serving the right thing to do, and we're serving other people doing the right thing. By doing that, we're serving ourselves because we could not live with ourselves not doing the right thing. We're always serving ourselves in some way. That's not to say that that's a bad thing. We should definitely be serving in the good way. But we're always served no matter what we do. Selfish duties and service, or selfish duties and service, always lead to decisions that deep down will benefit us. That's basically what I'm saying. And actually, the interesting thing is, whether it's people or not, we're all serving an idea. We're all serving an idea, a belief, or an ideology. There's a reason we do the things that we do. It's clear to me that every individual who has the capacity to make decisions regarding duty, service, serve not just people, but the idea, an idea, a belief. People do things because they believe there's a reason to do so. Sometimes it's just very simple. If I do this, this will happen. If I do X, Y will happen. We don't think too much about it. It's just, if I do that, this is the result. So I'll do it. Some of it just, it's going with the flow. This is what's expected of me in church. It's what's expected of me in work. It's what's expected of me in my family or my community or my society. <clears throat> so I'll do it. It's the idea of society. It's the idea of cause and effect. It's the idea of fitting in, whatever it is. Some of it's political and philosophical. They believe that doing X, Y, and Z will lead to a utopia or some better society of some kind. Some of it's theological. We believe that it is what God or the gods have taught us and that God or gods must be obeyed. So we're always serving an idea or a belief. And the idea, belief, and actually matters. The objects and the people you serve matters. It really does matter who you serve. It matters which ideology you believe and serve. When we try to serve ourselves and other people at the same time, 
that often leads to problems. When we try to serve ourselves and parents at the same time, it often leads to disagreements. When we try to serve uh, ourselves and our spouse, it often leads to disagreements. When we try to serve ourselves and friends or family at the same time, it can lead to disagreements. When we try to serve self, our peers, and God at the same time, that can lead to real problems. Sometimes serving yourself is the right option. Sometimes serving someone else is the right option. Sometimes a compromise is the right option. All of them serve ourselves in some way, to a greater or lesser degree. Now, why does it matter? Well, because all I, not all ideas and beliefs and ideologies are right. Not all of them should be served. For example, this is, I think, the biggest problem with our society today. We teach on mental health. Uh, I went to a mental health first aid training course. Uh, and do you know what the lists of mental health causes are that they come up with? Poverty, racism, homophobia, and various other things. I took issue with that. I know people in poverty who have no mental health issues. There are people who are ex experience racism, do not have depression, who don't have generalized anxiety disorder. They are contributing factors. And yes, there are chemical imbalances and various other experiences and events in our life that lead to mental ill health. And I speak as someone who has experienced it, Lindsay too. One of the biggest problems our young people have is that they are told that pleasure, happiness, laughter, freedom to do whatever you want, freedom from families, communities, societies having a say in our personal choice is what will, is an ideology to pursue. The opposite is happening. We see an increase in sexual freedom, relational freedom, and we see a decrease in happiness. And yes, there's lots of other things. But it seems so glaringly obvious that that is one of the biggest issues young people are facing. They are not being told right from wrong. They are being told that you can serve whoever you want in whatever way you want, as long as you're not murdering and doing the big, big crimes. And it's leaving young people lost and afraid and we're seeing men committing suicide by their hundreds every year in Scotland. Not all ideologies, beliefs, and attitudes and behaviors should be served. Self-service is an ideology. Serving a government, serving a society is not a good way to go. And the problem we have is we're seeing, in, as we work in schools, and the introduction of new legislation around sexual health and relationships and a human identity is that not all ideologies, beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors are compatible. We need a deciding factor. Who's right? Who's right? We've got to use something to tell us what's right and wrong. What's good, what's bad, what's beneficial, and what's detrimental to individuals and to communities. The government have just instituted LGBT education indoctrination into the school. And regardless of your view on that, the biggest issue with that is that it is an experiment. 
There's no evidence to suggest that what they are going to implement in Scottish schools this year will do any good for anyone, including LGBT people. That's a problem. Who decided this was a good idea? Consultation with LGBT Scotland and various other organizations that are pro this is not consultation. It's not proper research. Asking only people in the LGBT community that they want to hear from is not enough. Who decided? Maybe it will do some good for a lot of things. Maybe it will. But it's an experiment that is not consulting the true deciding factor of what is good for young boys and girls who have identity crisis problems and issues who desperately need love. That really upsets me. We need the deciding factor in this world. People are lost. There's something we must choose has to be the right thing. It can't just be the consensus, or oh, we all think this, so therefore it must be. It can't be something arbitrary. It can't be something that's made up. It can't be something that just makes us happy. Oh, well, I don't want to upset them. It has to be something good and reliable that we know will change people's lives. It has to be bigger than us. It has to be beyond humanity. It has to show a tremendous ability to transform lives. And who better than God, than Jesus Christ? For all our medicinal developments, we have not managed our economies well enough to manage them. We can't afford. People are not getting the medication and the, the care that they need because we can't afford it. So, oh, we're great. Oh, humanity is great. We've created all these great things. Yeah, but you pay a fortune for it. We're not that great a society when we have to charge thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds to save someone's lives, whether it be through the NHS or private health care. Humanity ain't that great, no matter what the hum humanists tell us. For all our technological advances, we've not actually taken responsibility for the consequences. Oh, Facebook's brilliant, so is Instagram. But look at the problems. We create great things that can do great things, but we don't know how to manage them. Our creator, the creator of self, the creator of other people, the creator of service, the person who's given us the capacity to even think about this stuff must be the deciding factor. The creator of morality has to be the one who decides what is right and wrong. Morality was there a long time before us. Even the atheists would say, well, you know, you don't let other people suffer because that's just wrong. Why is it wrong? Oh, it's just in us. It's our genes. Why is it in our genes? Well, it's to preserve our species. Why should we preserve our species? Because we're worth existing. Why are we worth existing? Why do we have, because it, it, it feels that way. Why do we feel that way? There's a cause. There's a reason. We've been given morality. We've been told life is important, that we should value other people. It's in our genes because God put it there. We must look to the Creator. Because if we don't, we're just suggesting that even our morality is just random luck. We've got two options. We believe we're created or we don't. And when you don't, you have nothing to offer. Nothing. Young people are growing up in a world where they decide. 
And while many will lampoon that as fantastic, just watch what happens to society. We can physically and see what's happened to society the more we've pushed Christ out of our society. I know what happens in my life when I push Christ out. It hurts. We need Christ. We need God. When you push him out, you suffer. And that is what God said to the Israelites. You push me out and you will suffer, not because I'm a tyrant, not because I hate you, but because you will not have me. We need God. And there is only one. Not all rivers lead to the same sea. It's not, oh, well, you could be a Buddhist and all that. No. Through Christ alone, our hope is found. Use intelligence and rationality and reason. We've been given it. Don't just believe everything that's been said. We use it to even analyze the sermon and as you think about what's been said, you go, oh, I don't know if I agree with that. That's all good. We're meant to rationalize, reason, talk with God, figure them out, say we don't like this, we don't like that. That's all good. But there's a problem. God does have requirements. And that's what puts people off. God has a plan for you, requirements for you. He's not absent. He is at work for you and in you for his glory. He has rules. He has expectancies. And he is the arbiter that we must all concede to. Sometimes that goes in our favor. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes what the word of God says really benefits us. Sometimes it benefits somebody else. Because we are the hurt one or whatever. Or they're getting the benefit of it. But the wonder of God in all of these requirements is that his requirements lead to salvation. The Israelites chose God and their nation stood. The moment they chose others, their nation fell. And so it cycled on for decades. And so this morning we all have a choice. Do we want to cycle on, on and off with God? Do we want to persist in our living relationship with him day by day? Or are we going to leave church with God in here and us out there? It may sound like a harsh sermon, but it's a truthful one. It is the reality. And Lord, help me if I've explained God as a tyrant. You cannot see a God as a tyrant who says things like, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, look, stop trying to argue and be up here and get it all sorted yourself. Be a little child, trust in me, and you will enter the kingdom of heaven. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. God is serious because he knows what it means for us. You're condemned. Let me save you. What good is it, brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? 
In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied, if it is not accompanied by action, it's dead. God is serious and he wants us as Christians to be serious about our faith. There are people out there who still have to choose and we have to choose. Are we actively living out what Christ has asked us to do? Or are we just sitting going, I'm glad I'm saved and I'll pray for people every now and again. Prayer is the most powerful thing you can do for anyone, by the way, but my point stands. Are we actually serving God? Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. That's the God we're talking about. Taste and see that He is good. He is compassionate on all that He has made. Every good and perfect thing, every good and perfect gift is from Him. He is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in Him. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. If you hope in the Lord, He will renew your strength. Forget the building and the church. Jesus loves you. There is no favoritism. Jesus loves you. And he says, choose me. I want you to have me, to have eternal life, and be transformed by the Holy Spirit that I will give you as a free gift. Whether you have it or not, he asks us today to serve him. My apologies for the tears. God has been in a lot of work in my life. I recently found out how amazing he is. Okay. Praise Jesus. Sorry. Amen.